Did you know that the Tent Talks is supported by listeners just like you? Tent Talks is 100% patron supported. It takes time and effort and money to make these podcasts, and we are so grateful to the patrons who support our work. If anything we make has been useful or interesting to you, then perhaps you too would consider becoming a patron. For as little as £5 or $5 a month, you would have access to a lot of extra material. Studies, lectures, talks, music, interviews, loads of bonus stuff. Also once a month, the fellow traveller patrons meet up on Zoom for discussion and questions and answers and to talk to the hosts of the Tent Podcast, as well as special guests. Become a patron today by following the links in the episode description of this podcast or by going to patreon.com and looking for Tent Theology. Help yourself out, help us out, and meet fellow travellers who care about the same things you care about. Who could possibly say no to that? Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Stephen here. Welcome to the Tent Talks podcast. Our current series is on love. I've learnt over the last few years, if I needed learning it, that this is a hard and cruel world. But one of the things I've really noticed is how personal views of power, how personal attempts to hold on to power, lead to really hard and cruel institutions. We don't know how to love. Rather than look at all the bad things that we do over and over again to each other in organized and personal ways, I wanted to look at how to love. How can we find ways to make our power better for others? How can we find ways to personally pay attention to our neighbor, to consider others better than ourselves, to love our enemies, to do any of these things that the world desperately needs? We have to learn how to love. So with that in mind, I've been seeking the views of people whose words or actions I admire, who I see as examples of love in this age. Thomas J. Ord. I'm professor of open and relational theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. I uh, do studies in theology, philosophy, and multidisciplinary studies, which basically means I care about too many ideas and <laughs> I'm an eclectic thinker. What is love? What is love? I actually do a long lecture on this, 
And I start by looking at seven different ways scholars have thought about love and then come to my definition. Uh, one way to think about love is to simply equate it with desire. Plato's thought is often linked with this, although you can find it in the Christian tradition, especially in the works of Augustine. And so to love something is to have a desire for it. And in that way of thinking, you can love things well or poorly, properly or improperly. Your desires can be appropriate or inappropriate. I don't particularly like that uh, definition for love, at least as a comprehensive definition, because I think most of the time, uh, at least in the way I think about love, love has something to do with what is positive or what promotes flourishing what fosters well-being. But I think desire has something to say about love, so I'm going to leave that on the table. Another way to think about love is to think, say that love is basically relationships. Um, some pretty sophisticated philosophers in the 20th century thought about love as this mutuality of giving and receiving. And, you know, if you go on Facebook and you want to say you're, you're in love with someone, you've, right, you put in, I'm in a relationship with someone. I think relationality is essential to love, but I don't think relationships themselves are loving. Because, again, for me, love has something to do with promoting what's good. And we all know that some relationships don't promote what's good. Others, in, for instance, some psychologists equate love with warm or positive emotions. So if you love, oh, for instance, I have two grandchildren. Sometimes the warm emotions I get around them are so powerful, and it's easy for me to call that love. The problem with equating love with warm emotions, however, is that sometimes because of warm emotions, I and others do things that don't really promote the well-being of others. Uh, so, for instance, with my grandchildren, maybe my emotions are so warm and fuzzy that I don't make them uh, eat the, their vegetables or whatever, something that's good for them. So uh, I think love involves emotions, but I wouldn't equate it with emotions. Another way of thinking about love, and it's usually in response to emotions, is to say love is a decision. You decide. And um, I hear this often amongst people who do, let's say, marital counseling. Usually a couple comes in and they've been having problems, maybe fighting. They don't like something about each other. And the therapist says, okay, you've just got to decide that you're committed to one another. Um, now, I think love involves decisionality and commitment, but I think it's got to be more than that. So I'm stringing these along. <laughs> another way to think about love is to say that love is an energy. A lot of 21st or 20th century philosophers would call love an energy. And I think there's something right about this in that I think of love as an activity. It's not an object you put on the shelf. It's something you do. But because I think some energies produce, you know, evil, I wouldn't say love is energy itself. 
So another way to think about love that I don't think captures all of what I at least want to say love is. Some people will say, of course, it's obvious love is God because God is love. And so every time you see a loving action, that must mean God has temporarily taken control of the lover, and what you see is God acting in the world. Now, I think there's a strong connection between God and love. In fact, I would say God is the power or empowerer or inspirer of all love that we see in the world. But I wouldn't want to equate love with God. So that's off the table for me at least as a full explanation of love. Finally, um, I've mentioned in several of my uh, previous comments about what love is not, that uh, their well-being or doing what's good or beneficial or promoting flourishing is important for love. And um, But I wouldn't equate love with those things because I think sometimes people can accidentally help someone else. <laughs> Their intentions may in fact have been to harm them, but they ended up helping them. And I wouldn't call that an act of love. So setting all of those options on the table and saying none of them in and of themselves provide for me what I think is a great definition of love, but each of them offer some aspect that I want to incorporate in my definition let me now propose this as a definition of love. It has three parts. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. That's the definition I find helpful. It makes well-being the aim of love and its overall well-being, which means not only the well-being of my family and friends, but my enemies, myself, strangers, the planet. In my view, even God, we can love God in the sense of promoting God's well-being, mm -hmm. but it has to be intentional and it's always in relationship. How did you... How did you get to this? Did you, you didn't start out life being a love theologian. How, no. Where where did this come from, and, and and what sort of place does love? Is there a is there a story or a moment when love really started to make sense to you? Yeah. Well, you know, I think like most things in life, it's a combination of factors. You know, I, I've got to think that having parents who were pretty loving—I mean, not perfect, but pretty loving—shaped me. Uh, being a part of a religious tradition that talked about love, that probably shaped me. But there was a time when I was in college that I stopped believing in God. I took a course in philosophy, philosophy of religion and read some really smart agnostics, atheists. I grew up Christian and I was reading people from other religious traditions. And those readings led me to doubt there was a God at all. And so for a while, I was an atheist. I returned to faith in God, belief in God, uh, based primarily on two issues. One was a search for meaning in life and believing that I couldn't affirm an ultimate meaning for life if there wasn't an ultimate basis for meaning that most people call God. But the other was 
even though I didn't believe in God at the time, I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person, that other people ought to love one another, that in some sense, love was the answer. (laughs) And I couldn't make good sense of those deep intuitions if there wasn't a source or a spring of love that most people call God. So from that time forward, love has been central to my way of thinking, not only about God and not only about who I ought to be and how I ought to act, but really about existence in general. Do you think of love as almost an apologetic, like an argument for the existence of God then? I wouldn't say it's a proof, but I would say, at least for me, I can't give a good overall explanation for love, the love I express, the love I see expressed by others, the love expressed by Jesus, the Buddha, you know, Gandhi, etc. If there is no God, so it's it's maybe not a proof, but it's it, yeah, an apologetic, uh, uh, an attempt to give an overall explanation for things, including love. Can we go back a bit when you? So, so a very common response is, "Oh, God is love," and where you see love, that's where you find God. I don't see the, but you didn't like that as a definition. And yet what you're saying now sounds a bit like that to me. So can we delineate a bit more? You know, what what happens when you meet, uh, what happens when your atheist philosopher truly loves with the sense of well-being his partner? Have you found God there? Yeah, I would say my atheist friend who truly loves is responding to God's empowering, even though that person doesn't believe there is a God. (laughs) So um, I don't think you have to believe in God in order to love. I think God is the source or spring or or, uh, impetus for all the love we see expressed by creatures. But what bothers me is that some people think that whenever we see love in the world, God is temporarily made those people into robots. And so it's only God causing that love. There's no creaturely contribution. And I think it makes better sense to say creatures cooperate with this empowering that God does. And so what we see as love among creatures is really creatures loving, but it has God as its impetus. What is the opposite of love then? Ill-being for me. In other words, evil that which undermines what's good and promotes well-being. Whatever undermines good and promotes well-being. And fails to promote. Or ill-being. Yeah, Yeah, fails to promote. Okay. Yeah. So does that take the, is there a word for that? Evil is close, except that I think sometimes evil occurs when people, without intentional actions involved, you know, so you know, maybe a, a random genetic mutation that kills somebody. I don't think that was a, a, a choice on anybody's part. And whereas I think love is involves real choices. So it would have to be the opposite of love would have to be an intentional attempt to do evil in the world, make the world worse than it might have been. Can we be trained to love then? I mean, is it, can you actually get better at it? <laughs> or is yes. it something? Okay. Yes, we can improve our love skills. In fact, I think because love is a relational uh, activity and 
we have to discern how best to promote well-being in light of our relationships. We can not only improve over time, but also the more we are uh, in touch or bringing in data from our relationships, the better, the more likely it is that our actions will really improve overall well-being. Uh, you know, for instance, um, suppose I suppose I'm really attracted to a woman, but I don't know her very well. And as an expression of my great love for her, not only love that that uh, that uh, sees beauty in her, but also love that wants to promote her well-being, wants to make her feel good about herself and the world. Suppose I give her 24 roses and I put them in her room. Let's say I sneak in, I put them in her room so that when she arrives at home, she sees these roses. But suppose it turns out she's actually allergic to roses and she walks into that room and she gets sick. Now, did I promote her well-being? No, <laughs> but my intentions were good. And the problem was, is I really didn't know her very well. So part of what it, it involves being a good lover is to try to listen, to learn, to discern, to be relationally informed in ways that then you can respond to do what's best given the situation. And I even think God is involved in that kind of learning, that God is taking in the information moment by moment in order to, in the next moment, love in the most effective way possible. It really strikes at the heart, doesn't it, of uh, a typical, like, the kind of world I'm in, the sort of typical evangelical charismatic world. I mean, I'm not in that world, but those are the kind of people that I grew up around who, when you try and talk about systematic racism, for example, they go, I'm not racist. I love everyone, right? Because their intent, they feel their intentions are pure and they consistently do actions and create systems which actually just perpetuate the ill-being of people around them. That's right. I would say they don't have very broad empathy. They haven't taken in the relational information that affects so many others. And um, that's. I don't want to make the claim that the more educated you are, the better lover you are, because I, I know some educated people who don't love very well. But education can help us be more effective in our loving. Or emotional education or something. I mean, we're, we're not talking about an academic degree so much, are we? As I would say, say both. I would say both. Yeah, you can learn sort of abstract information about the way the world works, about history, about how other people, the cultures, et cetera, and then use that information to be better in your efforts to promote overall well-being. Given that love is so obviously central to to the identity of God and the purpose of God in the world and to the person of Jesus, why aren't Christians more loving? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suspect there are a number of reasons for why Christians aren't more loving or why love doesn't play a more central role in Christianity. Uh, one is something I've kind of already alluded to, and that is there are a lot of different definitions or ways of thinking about love, and some of them uh, encourage us to be to promote well-being, to help others, and others are kind of more about just where our desires are. So, so for instance, here's a good example. Um, you know, if you think of love as an intense desire, then you might think that you are 
incredibly loving when you desire to worship God and tell God how amazing God is and have this deep emotional experience in worship. And that's the pinnacle of love, you might think. But you might be doing that all the while contributing to making the world a worse place, (laughs) you know. Um, So that definition of love is going to not mesh well with Jesus' commands to love your enemies, help the poor, care for the the, uh, vulnerable, etc. So the definition of love is going to really matter here. Um, It's also been the case that Christians in general have had this infatuation with omnipotence, power, control, and they've wanted to portray God as the most powerful, omnipotent, in control. And because of this, there's been this clash between God's love and God's power in Christian theology. And so, uh, you know, take a really the biggest reason why atheists say they can't believe in God, according to most polls, that's the problem of evil. If God is so loving, then why doesn't God prevent the unnecessary suffering, the pointless pain in the world? Well, a lot of Christians will want to say, God didn't cause that pain, God permitted it, because they think God has the kind of power to do anything God wants to do. But that doesn't sound really loving to the person who's just been tortured, you know, to say to them, well, God could have stopped your torture, but this omnipotent God chose to allow it. So that's been an obstacle, I think, for Christians, because conceptually they've wanted to say God's in control. And when that clashes with God's love, most Christians opt for the power over the love. So, but where do you go then? I mean, how would you approach the problem of evil? I don't think God is omnipotent. I think God is powerful, but can't control anyone or anything. So God's love always seeks the well-being of all creation, but can't control anyone or anything. That's alarming to some people (laughs) that uh, because for many omnipotence is kind of a default view when it comes to God. But I don't, I'm actually writing a book on this topic right now. There's no straightforward biblical word for omnipotence. The words that have been translated almighty or omnipotence are mistranslation. So the biblical text doesn't give us good support for that view. That's a whole nother conversation we could have, but that's that's a really big problem in not only Christian theology, but most uh, theology in Islam and some Jewish theologies. So against this omnipotence, which is itself a, a non-existent property anyway, right, would be this word that we call love. So so love is the drawing together or the binding up or the, the seeking out to 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 connect as many people as possible i mean what 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 kind of operation is love in the in creation i mean we talked about it in terms of human beings and that kind of relationship but how does love operate in terms of the non-physical world or the chemical and physical you know physics do you see love in operation in in the structures of creation well i see god as an omnipresent spirit who loves at all levels and calls all creatures and entities no matter their complexity to try to respond to promote well-being given 
the constraints and, you know, however complex they are. Yeah. So um, I think there is a, a universal spirit of love that we call God at work at all levels of complexity from the most complex to the least and calling all creatures to respond to whatever is they're capable of given who they are and how complex they are. And when creatures respond to that call for well-being, when they respond appropriately, I should say, then we see love at, at work. And that love can take a ton of different forms. In fact, my latest book is called Pluriform Love to talk about all the different ways love can be expressed by complex creatures and less complex creatures. Um, so I do think God is active at all levels of creation, and we see the witness of love even in less complex creatures when they respond to God's calling. All right. So we have a we have a world that has been created by uh, the Christendom has been created by people who are infatuated with omnipotence and power. And so we've got the structures we've got and we've got the communication styles that we've got and we've got the politicians that we've got and we have the leadership structures and, you know, we have the culture that we've got and it all comes down to power, really. We're trying to imitate our image of what we think God's power looks like and we're trying to do that ourselves. So what would those things look like if love assumed its rightful place? Do you have do you want to take a stab at what institutions and politics and relationships would look like? Well, let me begin by saying I don't think the opposite of love is power. I think the opposite of love is control that seeks to do evil. So for me power is kind of a neutral word like influence except that influence suggested they can't be controlling because influence suggests there's other uh, powers. What if I said domination or? Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. Domination. That sounds more controlling. So what would um, societies, governments, leaderships. Or just Christi uh, what would, Christianity. <laughs> Christianity. What would it look like? Well, I think there would be a lot more if if love were to reign in the christian tradition or in christian circles you would have a lot more listening that occurs you'd have a lot more input from all the players involved it would be less hierarchical less top down it would be asking questions about what's really going to promote good in our lives and in the world not that we have all you know, easy answers to those questions. But um, often I find in Christian circles, the question isn't being asked, you know, what makes the world a better place or how is this going to promote flourishing in our lives and in our community? Uh, the question is often, uh, you know, what does God say we must do? Or what does the tradition require us from us? Or if we're really, I don't know, I'll pick on some Christian denomination. If we're really true Lutherans, well, we've got to do it the Lutheran way. Apologies to my Lutheran friends. So it's asking... Other denominations are available. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so it's asking a different kind of question. And that makes a big difference when we ask uh, another kind of question. What what would you hope that you know, the listeners, what question would you hope the listeners would be able to bring with them into their daily interactions? What's the question that unlocks love 
in any situation. Do you have an idea? For me, it's the question of what might I do in this moment, in this instant, in this environment or setting that could really be helpful, that could really make the world, including my own life often, better in this particular situation. And what is helpful in one moment might not be helpful in the next. And what I might choose, given who I am, might be different than what you might choose. So there's going to be some diversity here. But it really is asking the question in each moment, what is God calling me to do to make the world a better place? Or to use more Christian language, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit or usher in the kingdom of God or promote the common good. Yeah. As we're coming to land, is there anything else you'd like to say? Is there any kind of final final stuff that maybe I haven't brought up that you thought you would like to talk about? Is there any final words? When I die and my family decides to put something on my tombstone, what I want more than anything is for them to feel like they should put something like, he really tried to live a life of love. That matters more to me than writing books or being famous or having lots of money or whatever. That to me is the very core of what it means to live life well in relationship to God and creation. So most of all, I want to live a life of love. Well, Tom Ord, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate this hey, conversation. I hope there's something in there that's helpful for your, oh, I love your it. mishmash yeah. of stuff. I kind of went one a bunch Perfect. of different directions. I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. It's exactly what I was hoping for. So thank you so cool. much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.